Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I took my first, first class in a doctor of ministry program back in February, and uh, I just got my grade, uh, my, my evaluation uh, for my final project and for the class. Yeah, so for those of you that are in school, Pastor Dave knows what that's about too. <laughs> Great teacher, a little bit of an absent-minded professor because I sent my final assignment to him in April, and a couple of weeks ago he said, uh, you haven't sent in your final project yet, so I sent it to him again. Um, and he said this, thank you for your work. And our assignment was to write a sermon on a passage of scripture that utilized the principles that were taught in class. <clears throat> Thank you for your work. You worked through a difficult but helpful passage. You worked at following the argument of the passage. Uh, and then he gets uh, a little fuzzy here. He says, I think the passage may have been too long for one message. Yeah, too long? I can't understand that. Um, <laughs> Think about it. You'll, you'll get it. I suggest you spend more time and energy on the primary passage. There he goes. He's going sideways again. You, um, um, obvi- now here he gets it right. Obviously these, obviously these are subjective comments, but they may be helpful. Yeah. Now here he really gets it right. You are clear and easy to follow. Your message is profitable. Keep preaching and improving. The part in the middle you don't need to hear that much of. <laughs> I got a B plus, so that meant I got an A minus for the class, so that's, that's good enough for me for my first class. <laughs> One of the reasons I am pursuing this educational program is to get feedback just like this, and uh, I didn't read the other part of it because that's for me. <laughs> I want to get feedback from men who have the who are excellent in their fields and who are objective and, and can, uh, can give good input and, and need that. Um, it's not hard to give yourself a good grade. It's not hard to give yourself a good evaluation. But we need input from the outside, and, and that's what's going on in Corinth. And the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthians, they gave themselves an A++ on being Christians, and on being a church. And the Apostle Paul is writing back to them saying, a couple of areas need some serious work. And one of those, he he is turning his attention a little bit, but he's not really leaving the main theme that he started in the first four books. And that main theme has to do with pride and arrogance as Christians about their spiritual life and the condition of their church. But he turns from that theme just by itself to an application of that theme in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this thing might be taken from you. The thing that, uh, that I hope we're going to learn today is this. A mature believer mourns over sin. 
you know, uh, I've been contemplating preaching this passage, but I didn't realize the real theme that's here until I got in and studied this week. And it's about spiritual mourning. If we're going to understand that, we need to understand, first of all, what was the sin that was going on here? And the word that's used in uh, some of your translations is fornication, um, or some of them say sexual immorality. The Greek word is the word pornea, and it means any kind of sexual sin. You can see that this is the root word for the word pornography in English, and uh, it it came to mean and was used in the New Testament as any kind of sexual immorality. If you look at verse 5, though, it's modified a bit when it says a man has his father's wife. Now, we can, we can look at that and say, well, I, we think we pretty much understand what it means, and you do, but just in case it's not clear, we could go to Jesus' words to the woman at the well, and he says, for you have had, that's the same word, it's, it's written in the, in the tense of has here, you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. In, in other words, this is a word that probably in the common language of that day meant living together. You have someone, you are with someone um, a lot of other terms that we use, but that's what he was talking about. And of course, he's talking about sexual activity outside of marriage. In the Old Testament, God was very detailed in, de- in, in, uh, in laying out what things were wrong. And here's just a little part of one passage. No one is to approach any close relative. I've used the NIV here because I think they make this the clearest possible. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. That's about as strong a statement as God makes in the Old Testament about anything. When he says, I am the Lord, that's like, uh, you know, when a kid goes to mom and dad and says, why? And the mom and dad says, because I'm your mom and dad. That's God saying, I am the Lord. Do not dishonor, but just in case, I I love this. Okay, is that not clear? Pretty clear. But just in case that isn't clear, (laughs) do not dishonor your father by having sexual relations with your mother. She is your mother. Do not have relations with her. Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. And it goes on and mentions 10 more relationships. Do not with this. Do not with this. Do not with on and on and on until there's no question left that everybody in your family is off limits. Okay? Now, that's the way God wrote the Old Testament. And... If you're a Bible student at all, you know that some things changed when Christ came. And in particular, Christ said, I have come to to do what to the law? Abolish it? To fulfill the law. So somehow what he came to make possible goes beyond or, or encapsulates the law into its highest order. Well, and so God makes that really clear for us in one statement in the book of Hebrews, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. 
but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. This is the word from 1 Corinthians 5, translated sexual immorality or fornication in some of your translations. And so God contrasts the bed of marriage, the bed of marriage with fornication and, and adultery. In other words, let's be really simple here. The sexual relationship within marriage is honorable, but everything else is sin. Everything else is sin. Now, God could have listed, 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 and apparently a lot of people want that because they keep trying to manipulate these words into saying something different. But if we look at the, at the clear statement of the Old Testament, which not only talked about your own family, it talked about all kinds of things that I won't even mention, because some of them are even more gross, more ew, than something with your own family, if that's possible. But God just says, look, here's the deal. Sexual activity is for marriage. And if you have any doubt about one man and one woman, go back to Genesis and then go to Matthew 19, then go to Romans 1, and it's just really plain. I'm not here to, I'm not here to uh, preach that sermon today, but if you wanted to memorize a verse about honorable sexuality, it would be this verse right here. The marriage bed is undefiled, but everything else is pornea. Everything else is fornication. Now, look back with me at the, uh, the Corinthian passage. First of all, the guy's committing sexual immorality. He's breaking the Old Testament standard. He's breaking the New Testament standard. But look what else he's breaking here in verse 5. Such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Do you know what that leads me to believe? This, this is... This may be hard for you to grasp, and it is for me too. The Corinthian society may have been more honorable than our own. You know why? The Jerry Springer Show. If you haven't ever seen the Jerry Springer Show, you haven't missed much. It is a good way to see what our society thinks. And the reality is, in our society, almost nothing's off limits. Almost, and, and in fact, that's the way our society is moving. But somehow, in the Corinthian society, maybe we would even just say in the common Greek society, because Corinth was essentially in the sphere of Greece in that day. In the Roman society, Rome ruled the world. They looked at this and said, that's messed up. Now, they wouldn't have called it a sin because they just didn't use those words in the secular society. The man in Corinth was going beyond every standard. And imagine this, if the people in Corinth were saying that's messed up, think of what they approved of. They approved of prostitution big time. Whether it was heterosexual or homosexual prostitution, the temple of, of, uh, of Venus there um, uh, in Corinth, all of this going on, and yet they looked at this and said, that's messed up. Now, remember also, let's come back. Who is this committing this sexual sin? A member of the church. 
And that's, as I studied this week, I realized this passage is not about sexual immorality. It's wrong, I hope you understand from what I've just said, I believe it's wrong. But this passage is about the attitude of the Corinthians towards sin. This is what's going on, verse two, and your response to it is arrogance. You are puffed up. Puffed up is, a tr- is one way to translate this word. It literally means to be inflated. It's a word we would take of a, a here's a balloon. A balloon is this big, and now I'm gonna blow it up and it's this big. These people were inflated in their opinion and in their response to the man living in sexual sin who was a member of their church. The Corinthians made themselves to be bigger than they were. The NIV uses the word proud. I think the best word is arrogant. Look at verse six. It says they were glorying. (laughs) Can you imagine coming to church And the topic of discussion is brother so-and-so who lives with his father's ex-wife or, I don't know, maybe the father's still alive, I don't know. And you're talking about that and the people somehow are glorying that he's part of their church. God doesn't tell us what their arrogance was about, but we can only imagine so many scenarios. Were they bragging? that they could have a church member like this and it won't harm our church. It'll never be a problem in our church to have a man carrying on with a relationship like this. And by the way, it's not his mother because there's a word for mother. And apparently she wasn't part of the church because she isn't criticized. She's outside the church. Were they bragging? We can have this man and it won't harm our church. Maybe they were proud about how open-minded they were. You know, the new phrase now is open and affirming. We are open and affirming. Whoever you are, whatever you are. Now, we ought to be open. Hey, you're welcome to come in the door. And we ought to be encouraging as in God's gonna help you. We should never be hateful or rejecting. But we should not be affirming. Maybe they use this little phrase. I hear this a lot. Well, nobody's perfect. And that phrase gets used to justify doing nothing about sin. Well, hey, nothing's, nobody's perfect. Maybe they were so focused on the change from Old Testament law to New Testament grace that they said, well, we can't be legalistic. We can't make up rules here. We don't want to be just about enforcing what's right and wrong. Maybe they prided themselves on building everyone's self-esteem. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. No, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings either. That's not my goal. That's not God's goal. God's goal is righteousness. Maybe they believed that opposing sin would keep unbelievers from Christ. You know, we don't want to drive anybody away from the Lord. So we're not going to preach really about sin too much. We're not going to talk about it too much you know, um, we're just going to kind of let things be. Now, 
uh, you may be tempted towards some of those thoughts, but I know they're wrong because of what Paul says their attitude should have been. Look at verse two. Instead of some kind of arrogance, and by the way, let, let me back up just one more minute and define spiritual arrogance in this context. Anytime you exalt your thinking above God's clear instruction, you are arrogant. Anytime you exalt your way of thinking over God, when God says, this is the truth, this is right, this is what you're supposed to do, and you say, well, I just think. That's spiritual arrogance. There's a lot of stuff that God tells us that's hard. It's simple, but hard to live. But we can't respond to it by saying, well, God, you just don't understand this situation. We're just gonna have to take things into our own hands. Instead of an arrogant attitude, verse two said they should have mourned. The NIV says they should have been filled with grief. Mourning, or, and, and, and by the way, if you're not familiar with the word, that's mourning spelled with a U in the middle, and that's the same, it's the same as grieving, to be in mourning, to be grieving. It's something that is done when someone dies. And it should be what we do when sin is committed by ourselves or by others because the wages of sin is death. To take an opposite attitude is to say, well, I know God says bad things come from sin, but somehow I think in this situation, the better path is to let the sin be because I think something good will come from it. Now, we don't say it that way, do we? That's why we get into trouble, both personally and corporately. I want to spend the rest of my time this morning talk to you about what it means to, to spiritually mourn and to just ask the question, where does spiritual mourning come from? What in us will bring this? Well, first of all, mourning over sin begins with accepting God's definition of sin. I've been reading in 2 Samuel in my morning time with the Lord, and I've just come through that terrible section that I knew was coming, and I wished I didn't have to read it, about David, King David, casting his eyes on Bathsheba, committing adultery, and then finding out she was pregnant and say, well, maybe her husband will go into her and then everybody will think that's how she got pregnant and her husband was too honorable to leave the battle and go into his wife. And so David said, put him in the front of the battle. Let him die out there in the front of the battle. Essentially, he committed murder on top of adultery and lying and so on. But listen to, listen to God's comment okay when the wife of Uriah the that's Bathsheba's husband when when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead she mourned for her husband and when her mourning was over David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord I don't want that written on my on my tombstone I don't want that written in my daily journal. The thing that David did displeased God. 
is your definition of sin the same as God's definition of sin? Again, it's simple but hard, and it's hard because it cuts across our personal nature. In the Garden of Eden, God laid down a rule. God laid down a series of rules for his people Israel in the Old Testament. God has given us a list of rules for this era. We don't get saved by keeping the list of rules, but if we have believed in Christ and been made into a new creature, we strive to, we work at, we develop a life of obedience to whatever God has told us, for good or for bad. That is, getting rid of the old, putting on the new. The question to start with is, are you going to accept God's definition of sin? Or are you arrogantly, like the Corinthians, make up your own? When we use our own standard, here's the problem. (laughs) Our own standard is a lot less stringent. Right? Because, well, you have to understand, well, you know, my situation, well, 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 well. Mourning over sin begins by accepting God's definition of sin. And that goes all the way back to salvation. So many people want to look at the cross of Christ and God's requirement that we believe in him and say, I'm not that bad of a person. As a matter of fact, I've done quite a few pretty decent things. But God's standard, God's God's level, God's, God's instruction to us is, if you've done one, one sin, it's enough to condemn you. And of course, we've all done far more than one. And he says the only way that's going to get taken care of is if you will believe in Christ. And if you will believe in Christ, I will take them all away. And then you'll be able to live a life of righteousness and enjoy me. Mourning with sin begins by accepting God's definition. Number two, mourning over sin comes from realizing we have offended God. We have offended God. Adam and Eve knew they had offended God. That's why they hid. That's why they covered themselves up. They're thinking, oh, God's going to be mad. They're right. He was. And by the way, if you don't think God gets angry, read the scripture. It specifically says God is angry with the wicked every day. God is offended by sin. Cain was arrogant. God came to him and said, that's wrong. And he goes, am I my brother's keeper? Whoa, dude, I don't want to be anywhere around you when you're talking this way. This fellow got it right. One of the criminals who were hanged with Jesus blasphemed, spoke bad about him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, we receive the due reward of our deeds. He said, we have offended God. He got it. In 2 Samuel 12, 9, when Nathan is confronting David, he is taking, Nathan the prophet is taking God's word and bringing it to David. And he said this, why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? And we think, well, that's talking about the commandment. That's not talking about the Lord. Remember what Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. 
You either love God's word or you don't love God. What would somebody have to do to offend you? Maybe they would make fun of your clothing. Do you like that clothing as well as the stuff that's in style now? <laughs> Should have said that to Lyle. Should have paid him back. You can use that later this week. There you go. They question your intelligence. Are you stupid? They doubt your judgment. They insult your heritage or your people group. They're insensitive to realize the hardships you've been through. When people say such things, we're at least tempted to take it personally. And we need to understand that God takes it personally when we sin. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, but it's, it's wicked. You can be, it's okay to be angry with God. He's got big shoulders. Don't you dare. Don't you dare cast your anger to heaven and tell him he has failed. That is sinful and wicked. Sin offends God. David said this, this, we believe this psalm was written after Nathan came and brought the confrontation of God. And and, And David says, against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just or righteous when you speak and blameless when you judge. God is offended. If we don't understand that God is offended by our sin, we will be arrogant about our sin. These people should have said, wow, we have failed God. And that would have told them how to think and how to act. Do you know it's easier to insult people when they aren't in the room? I know for a fact that many of you have spoken poorly about somebody in very high office in this country. And if he was standing right there, would you walk right up to him and say all them things you've been saying? I think I had a friend, I had a friend who was a paramedic and I won't name the president, but he, he was covering the president's detail one time. And uh, if he's telling me the truth, he landed in the boys' room, same time the president. And the president made some witty banter, and he looked over and said, I didn't vote for you. <laughs> and my life is in your hands. No, he didn't say that. It's a lot easier to offend God when we don't see him. If Jesus, you remember that episode with Peter and Jesus? Jesus is being, uh, he's being, uh, you know, beaten and tried and accused of things. And he he told Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up. Peter denied him once, Peter denied him twice, Peter denied him the third time. And one of the Gospels records that it says Jesus looked at Peter. If you saw in the eyes Jesus Christ every time you sinned, it would make a difference, wouldn't it? We have to cultivate an awareness of the presence of God. 
And we, we can do that by living righteously and confessing our sins so that every time we sin, the Holy Spirit goes, that's wrong, and we, and we feel it and we perceive it. And we say, yes, that's wrong, and I do not want to offend you. You have been so gracious to me. You sent your son to die for me. And, and so we, we mourn, we grieve over our sin, and we confess our sin. Mourning, comes, mourning over sin comes from a realization that we have broken God's heart. Not only is God offended, not only does God get angry, but God gets sad. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This little verse comes in the middle of a section with a whole bunch of don't do these things and do these things. Ephesians 4 and 5. And right in the middle it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Do you think of God as saddened by your sinful behavior? Um, I try not to make my wife cry. 36 years of marriage, I learned one thing. Okay? Um, If I knew something was going to make her cry, I would stop before it got there. (laughs) Sometimes I'm not that smart. If God was standing in the room... And you knew you were going to look into his eyes and he was going to see him cry over your sin. Would you go ahead with the sin? Or if you'd already gone ahead and then you look and you see him crying, wouldn't you turn back and say, I have done wrong, I have failed my Lord and my Savior. And you would grieve over it and you would confess it and you would change, you would repent and move forward. Listen to Jesus grieving over over his people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And one of the texts talks about him weeping. It says Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I don't know who there is in your life that you love, Mother, father, sister, brother, son, daughter, girlfriend, boyfriend, best friend. I'm pretty sure you wouldn't break their heart on purpose. And if you did break their heart, you'd want to make it right. The problem here, first of all, is that the Corinthians didn't realize we're breaking God's heart. And God is upset with us. If they had understood that, they would have said, we've got to do something different here They would have grieved over their sin. They would have changed. They would have done the right thing. Sin breaks God's heart, and it ought to break our heart. Number four, mourning over sin comes from a realization that sin brings the discipline of God. Sin brings the discipline of God. God loves us too much to let us sin. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens or disciplines. And this isn't just a word about punishment, Sometimes Christians get the idea that God is going to punish them, like you have to pay for your sin every time you do it. No, it's about correction toward righteousness. But the correction sometimes has a very negative element in it. I talked to somebody one time who who had a very grave illness come on them, and he said, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think this is a correction from the Lord. I said, well, hey, If you think that's what it is, it probably is. It's God saying, hey, you need to turn your life here. 
God loves us too much to let us go on in sin. For they, the earthly fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. If you're teaching your child to drive a car and the child says, I don't particularly care for the lines on the road. I think they're just suggestions. Would you fold your hands and go, okay, honey, whatever you want to do. No, you'd reach over, turn the keys off, pull them out of the ignition and say, when you get that squared away, we'll have another lesson. Right? Because you are a caring parent. And if you're a child in that situation, you ought to be thankful that your parents care enough to provide for your safety. That's what God is doing through his disciplining. I don't want to come under the discipline of God. I don't want that. I didn't enjoy getting spankings from my dad. And I don't want to get one from God. In order to do that, I need to be walking with God so that when sin, when the temptation presents itself, I stop right there. And if I go beyond that, I stop there and I grieve it. And I say, oh God, that's wrong. And I turn so that God doesn't have to do something more to get me to turn. Number five, mourning over sin comes from a realization that sin hurts your soul. The great lie of sin is that you are going to be better off with it than you are without it. But we can only know the joy and peace of Christ when we're walking with Christ. Paul summarized this truth well here in Galatians 6. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. He he will never be wrong. For whatever a man sows, whatever deeds he does in his life, that will he also reap. If he sows to his flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. That means a a degrading kind of life, a a life that is being torn down. The wages of sin is death. He who sows to his flesh will reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit, he who lives in righteousness, will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And that's not talking about earning heaven. It's talking about that quality of life that Jesus talked about in John 10.10. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Abundant life. It starts at the every moment of righteous behavior. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. There's a lot of times when doing good takes time to reap the harvest of joy and peace. There are a lot of times when saying no to sin means there's going to be some difficulty right here and now. But in due time, we will reap if we do not faint. Now, coming back to the specific sin of 1 Corinthians 5, I want you to understand something else about sin and its consequences and the hurt that it brings to your soul. Anytime we step out of God's peace and joy, there are various pains of the soul But when the sin is sexual, we bring on ourselves unique hurts. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual sin sins against his own body. 
I will confess to you that neither I nor anybody else in the world could tell you with pinpoint precision exactly what this means other than to say it is a unique sin. And those people who have said, you talk about sex too much are wrong because there is a unique repercussion to sexual sin. It has some kind of special, unique hurt that it brings. I can only list some of the things that I know come from sexual sin. Sexual sin has a unique potential for enslavement. The world likes to call it addiction. I would call it enslavement because it's sin. Sexual sin has a unique potential for broken hearts. All of the people in the world who play fast and loose with sex, translate that one night stands, three night stands, whatever, of all of those people, only half, only half are going away without a broken heart. I have a book I've been reading called Sex in America. It's a statistical study of, it's an analysis of of, uh, interviews, both on paper and in person, done with thousands of college-age students. And you know what? The same stuff is true now that was true years ago. Girls want, generally speaking, to develop a relationship, and a guy wants a quick fix. It's just a physical thing. It ain't. It is a sin against your soul. Sin has unique potential for confusion about love. Sin has a unique potential for causing wrong decisions about love, about life, because of that confusion. And we ought to grieve over it. Hear me all the way out. We ought to grieve over it to some extent more then we might grieve over some other sins because it has a unique potential to hurt people. The problem with our society is we've been told we should take it less seriously. We should treat sexual sins as, well, you know, it ain't that big a deal. The reality is it's a bigger deal than some other things that people can get into. Let me ask one last question. Why don't people mourn for their sin? I would suggest two reasons. The first is this. Some people haven't grown up enough in Christ to realize how detrimental their sin is. I have tried to show you from Scripture how sin is detrimental. But some people haven't come to realize that. The truth is right now you have all just been taught this truth. You have all just been showed why God says sin is detrimental and why you ought to mourn. And so God's going to hold you more accountable when you walk out of here than when you walked in. Some people haven't grown up enough in Christ to realize how detrimental sin is. And then, frankly, some people don't want to accept the reality of sin. Some people say, well, yeah, I hear what you're saying, preacher, but I just don't care. I don't agree. I think I'm going to get away with it. I took shop in eighth grade, Marysville Junior High School, wood shop. Oh, I was so excited. I always wanted to work with tools and wood and stuff. And and, uh, I suppose I am a full-grown adolescent because I have a garage full of that stuff, and I'm I'm knee-deep in two projects right now. I love that. I'm sure the teacher taught us some things about safety. 
I don't really remember that much. Ah, and I sure wasn't thinking about it when I stuck this thumb on a moving table saw. The table saw was actually stationary, the blade was moving. (laughs) And honestly, it was one of those crazy things. What I was going to do, if I'd have done what I wanted to do, wasn't the safe thing. And what I ended up doing was less safe. And I put my thumb straight on the middle of that blade. And later that day, the doctor finished it for me. Okay. I can deny the reality of safety. And that doesn't mean that I won't get hurt, injured, have to suffer for six months while the healing goes on. I wish I had believed more of what I had been taught. I have a real healthy respect for the table saw now. I even use a push stick sometimes. Part of what God is trying to help us grasp in this passage is is we need to take him seriously, and then we need to take him seriously as a group. Because what he's going to go into next is saying, as a group, you need to take sexual sin seriously, and you need to have an impact on this person who is sinning. But I love what, he, what one commentator said about that, coming back to our morning theme. Church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it's a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. If we aren't broken-hearted, we aren't ready to help somebody else. You know, ever since finishing 1 Corinthians 4, a few weeks ago, I knew chapter 5 was coming. And I'm thinking, oh, it's a children's Sunday. Probably not the best day to preach about sexual immorality. Uh, it's a picnic. Oh, let's do something a little more positive at the picnic. And I mistakenly thought that this passage was about sexual immorality, but it's not. You know, it's not that hard for me to preach against sexual immorality. Okay, I'm not, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying, I, I, I fight my own battles of my mind and so on like every man does, but it's pretty easy to stand up and wax eloquent about what's wrong with morality and so on. It's a lot tougher to say, are you grieving about sin because I need to be grieving about sin and not just about sexual sin. I need to be grieving about every sin. And I might not struggle too much in that area, but there are some other areas. And we need to mourn. We need to grieve. Worship team, would you come while I'm finishing finishing my comments? The worship team's going to come, and we're going to sing a song of commitment to the Lord. And I would just invite you to think about your attitude towards sin as we sing this and giving yourself wholly to the Lord.